0: You are listening to Explore by The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Explore is about cycling with a sense of adventure, journeying into the unknown, setting off for a challenge, not knowing quite what lies ahead. This episode is no exception, although it features a slightly different type of journey. My name is Lionel Burney, and in this episode, we're going to meet an American cyclocross rider called Ben Frederick. Once upon a time, he dreamt of making it as a pro on the road. He brushed shoulders with Joe Dombrowski and even beat him in a cyclocross race once. But an innocuous crash while training on the trails caused a serious concussion. Ben had to learn simple tasks like how to make coffee all from scratch. He had to learn how to read again before he could even contemplate getting back on his bike. At Christmas, he travelled to Europe for the first time to brush shoulders with the giants of cyclocross. He stayed with friends of the podcast Jamie Anderson and Bernard Merman at the Flandrian Hotel deep in the Flanders countryside and immersed himself in Belgian cyclocross culture. He raced alongside Wout van Aert, Matthew van der Poel, and Tom Pidcock at the biggest events of the festive cyclocross season. A few weeks ago, I spoke to Ben about his story.
1: I am in sunny San Francisco, California, where it's supposed to be a balmy 60 degrees Fahrenheit today. It's truly the California dream.
0: And how long have you been based in California, up there in San Francisco?
1: I've only been here since April of last year. I've been slightly a journeyman throughout my uh, my life. I have been in Boulder California or Boulder, Colorado. I've been in uh, the New England area in western Massachusetts and also based on the East Coast. So this is where I've landed for who knows how long. So far so
0: good well let's go back to the beginning a little bit because you were relatively late to cycling weren't you i mean i think you're 32 years old now so kind of in your in your prime but uh, how did I mean, you get to cycling and and when did you get started and what drew you to the sport in the first place
1: i was a a, a student of music in in high school um and leading into college and um at the end of my, my senior year of high school I decided that I wanted to join the track team just kind of on a whim. I had already gotten into music school and it was like the last few months of high school so why not try. And I was able to uh, go from a 216, 800 meter dash to a 155 over the course of a few months. And so that kind of like triggered, um, you know, I got to thank, thank my parents for the good genes uh, for athletics and then going into going into college I had some friends who did mountain biking and um, kind of I did a did a mountain bike race wearing skateboard shoes and and board shorts and won uh, and so you know that kind of positive feedback loop of do a bike race do well in it um, makes you just want to keep keep doing it so at the the young age of 21 I started my foray into a competitive
0: cyclist, and so what was your journey over you know the next few years once you'd kind of been bitten by the bug for cycling?
1: Um, well, a uh, friend of the pod, Joe Dombrowski was from my area, and so I I naively just assumed that I was going to be the next Joe Dombrowski. So started training uh, really hard um, and wanted to wanted to make my my mark on at least U.S. cycling uh, as a as a road pro, and so from I guess for around four years, I, I really pursued the 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 professional road cyclist dream, traveling the country. Uh, I got some decent results, uh, winning some some pro uh, pro one two stage races in New England, and and having some results at the NRC level. But there was this little niggling thing called cyclocross that kept popping up. And was such a fun way for me to kind of ride out the form of my season and play in the mud. And I also was, again, that positive feedback loop of like, I, I tried it and I did well. So you kind of want to keep keep doing the thing. Uh, and so after kind of the road, road thing fizzled out and I had a realization of um, cyclocross being, your result is a little bit more indicative of the effort that you put in. I kind of made the made the switch to the dirt as like my main focus this, this would be around 2015
0: so did you sort of brush shoulders with Joe Dombrowski um, did, did you kind of you know, when, when did you let go of uh, of the the idea, the dream of trying to follow in in those sort of wheel tracks and make it as a uh, you know make it to the top of the sport on the road?
1: I did a a, a bike race, a, a cyclocross race with Joe when he was on the Bontrager Livestrong team, without any context of where he was in his season or how many weeks off the bike he had just come back from or anything like that. We went head to head into the final corner of a. Of a cyclocross race, and I came out on top. So, you know that's something I, I always get to brag about. Because uh, then the next in the next two years, he graduated to Team Sky, and I didn't. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I guess it was around 2015 where I, I wanted to give it one more shot as a as a road road pro and try to get that contract, that elusive contract, and just with the amount of time that it took to invest in it um, I didn't feel like there was enough results coming my way that justified it whereas on the cyclocross field I was able to to have success at a national level that we, like I guess meant something um, you know rarely was I getting on the podium on a road race at the national level but I was fighting for podiums at the national level in the US you know I was getting old at uh, at 26, 27 to be still trying to break my way into the sport. Uh, And so I saw kind of a ticking clock. and, And also, I find cyclocross way more fun.
0: The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy Management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbotts LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at Supersapiens.com for €159. Euros. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. Whatever your goals for 2023, Super Sapiens can help you perform to your very best. The system of continuous glucose monitoring can tell you how your body is responding to your diet, training and rest in real time. Go to supersapiens.com to find out more. yeah i mean it's that fun element of it that i think draws people in isn't it but for you you know what what was it the just that that anticipation on the start line i guess it's kind of almost like the 800 meters of um of cycling isn't it in it in its way or a sort of cross-country um you know a short cross-country race it's it's intense it's exciting Mm -hmm. it's technically challenging it's all of those things isn't it but what was it for you i guess i got my start
1: with mountain biking and the technical aspect of mountain biking was really appealing to me uh but ultimately you're kind of doing a time trial in the woods at least at the at the u.s level uh and then when i got into the road racing it was awesome because you're rubbing elbows with the people that you're racing with like you're literally racing people in real time um and cyclocross was like the perfect combination of both of those things like you're racing for corners you're rubbing elbows there's there's tactics involved and you also have to be able to drive a bike really good, um, which is something that I I have an aptitude in, and, you know, it, it helps in the enjoyment of it. Um, and there's also something so, I guess, gratifying about you have 60 minutes where nothing else but the next turn matters. Um, and in so many places in life with distractions or uh, being pulled in different directions or a five or six hour road race uh there's so much so much time for thoughts and uh and things to get in so i just appreciated the yeah just nothing nothing else matters just being fully present in in what's going on right in front of you
0: yeah i guess kind of active mindfulness almost isn't it you're right there's, definitely uh, that intensity that intensity means that there is no space for anything else except the the sort of full-on uh, concentration of of what is immediately in front of you so do you look at um your kind of career as a cyclist in terms of before and then after your crash because i mean that is just significant turning point isn't it And uh, tell me about what happened and when that was
1: um i was leading into the 2016 season um and i had gotten 12th place uh at our national championships in Asheville the year before I was able to garner enough sponsorship where I moved uh from the mid-Atlantic area up to um Northampton Massachusetts where that's where Jerry Powers lives that's where Stephen Hyde that's where the kind of the big names of our sport have created a culture that I really wanted to be a involved in so instead of driving eight hours every weekend to race with those guys I wanted to train with them uh, and so I kind of picked up my whole life and, and moved up there and two weeks before the season started uh, I had a very on the surface innocuous crash where I just kind of slid out in a turn I wasn't doing anything crazy and hit my head pretty hard I didn't have any other you know any other injuries other than I really knocked my head, and you know, um, knew I knew I hit my head pretty pretty hard, but kind of got up and was like, "Well, I got to finish, go finish my workout." And over the next fifteen minutes, it got really much much worse. And then um, over the next four days, uh, I guess a you know a brain injury had come to the surface and. And that was definitely a moment of deflection in my life where there was before the brain injury and then everything after. It was supposed to be a really hot day. I remember that. And I wanted to get up and get out the door pretty early to kind of avoid the worst of the heat. And the goal of the ride was to, to ride some trails at speed on my cycle cross bike to kind of like, you know, go fast, get used to changing, um, changing tractions and kind of get into the a race pace mindset. Um, and I was between efforts and just kind of like transitioning from one section of trail to another and hit some soft sand um, and again this is like it guess given my skill set it would be the equivalent of like tripping on a smooth linoleum floor like nothing you shouldn't trip on it so I just kind of like casually tipped over um, but where my head hit the ground um, my helmet dug into the soft sand and that caught me and so all of that 20 miles an hour um stopped pretty quickly and so there was no bounce there was no slide no dissipation of of any of that energy and yeah it just caused my brain to to smash into my skull pretty hard
0: yeah because i mean the cliche is that that sand would give you a a soft landing but of course in in this case with i guess you landed on your head and and that took all of the um all of the impact meant that that it as you say your 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 brain hit the inside of your skull, and basically there was just nothing to give i guess
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um I mean the obviously I was wearing a helmet um and you know uh my helmet had MIPS technology, so there was some movement in the outer shell of the helmet um and so you know I attribute the as looking back on it, it's like, you know, what one or two centimeters one direction, it would have been laughable and hilarious that I fell on such an easy section of trail. And on the other hand, uh, one or two centimeters the other way, or falling in a slightly different way, like we might not be talking right now, or or the my recovery story could have been even longer. Um And so, yeah, after like I, I hit the ground, I didn't lose consciousness. That I. I'm aware of and I just remember thinking like oh I really hit my head and just kind of waited for a few seconds to like you know is everything okay I guess it feels okay and then just kind of in the athlete mindset it was like well I gotta kind of gotta get on with it and and continued to ride and yeah over the next few minutes it, it, it became apparent that something something was not right. Well, I, I called I called uh, a friend and even they said that my speech was, was getting a little garbled and I wasn't making a ton of sense. Um, and so we coordinated that they were going to pick me up outside of this trail system. Um, and so I ended up having to ride for another half hour to get to a gas station where they picked me up because uh, I was pretty far from home. Um, and then I went home and kind of just it's like well I guess I'll just go to Dr. Google and see what you do if you hit your head Um there wasn't I didn't go straight to a hospital because I still felt like I could function and they were just going to tell me that like yeah you got a concussion so do these you know <clears throat> like don't look at screens or take some days off and so I was going to kind of wait until I had done those things before needing to go see a specialist and um, yeah and so Google just said like try to avoid uh, any sort of sensory input so like don't look at your phone, don't look at, you know, watch TV uh, stay in a dark room um, and so I kind of did that protocol over the next few days and I was even helping coach a a cyclocross clinic, and I wasn't able to go uh, go help that. And I just kept thinking, like, oh, it's gonna be fine. Maybe it's just one or few, two more days, and I'll get back on the bike. And, um, but there was a neg- a decline in cognitive function in um, in and then an increase in symptoms uh, to the point where over. Well, on day four, it became apparent that like something, something is very wrong. Um, And so then I ended up going to going to an emergency room. And because there isn't the education or conversations yet that there need to be. They just said all of the things that Google said. And meanwhile, I'm thinking, like, I can't even make breakfast without being mentally and physically exhausted. You know, I'm I'm struggling to remember how to make coffee. And, and the only support that I was given was take a week off work. And in hindsight, it's like, it was such a, almost, it, it was a shame to have that, um, that sort of advice, given how I didn't get back on a bike for over a year. I couldn't uh, read for enjoyment for a year and a half. I couldn't listen to music for a really long time. And yeah, I guess had I known going in, I don't know if that would have made it better or worse, but you know, I kept trying to fight the reality of having a, a brain injury and just kept assuming that, well, the cyclocross season is, it's a long one so if I can just get back on the bike and start training soon maybe I can get back for November racing okay well maybe I can get back for nationals ah well maybe I can go to Europe because uh, they're seasons long and meanwhile I'm I'm still not even able to like function
0: I mean this must have been pretty scary by this stage
1: yeah and and because I had kind of picked up and moved my whole life to to New England, um, all my family was, was in Virginia, but because of the healthcare system, this is, I <laughs> to like dive into, uh, the healthcare system in America, but because, because of how my healthcare was organized, I could, I could only get healthcare in Massachusetts. And so I felt very isolated, um, because I, I was still so new to the area. Uh, and, away from friends and family and even the ability to travel was was significantly impaired because I could sitting in a car with all of the 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 sensory overload of the the noise the car the the jostling the vestibular input um even just traveling a few blocks to the grocery store was was impossible not to mention um not to mention going and getting on a plane there were amazing people in the in the cycling community um Jerry Powers included who who connected me to to people who really rallied around me and my story because ultimately like it could happen to anyone um and they really saw me as Ben the human not Ben the cyclist and and invested a ton of their time and energy into Trying to get me back on my feet uh, just as a human being, not not back to being a pro or, or almost pro or anything like that. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE or Summit 4xE. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.
0: I mean, can you describe what it felt like? I mean, I'm imagining, you know, the the feeling of being in a car with the the scenery changing before your eyes, you know, every second, you know, that must have been really quite uncomfortable to cope with, um, for quite a period of time. It, it was, it was, it was, it, I mean, for somebody who touched wood, fortunately hasn't suffered a concussion. What was it, you know, like a, like a headache or, you know, what were the other kind of symptoms that you were suffering?
1: It, um, I think this is an important, uh, part in the conversation to so everyone's head injury concussion brain injury is is different if you were to look out the window and see a bunch of snow there's a uniformity to you know head injury where there are similarities but each head injury is completely different like a snowflake um so i'll speak to my my experience i was fortunate enough to not have the balance or coordination issues that can sometimes uh, happen with with brain injury Um, but most of most of my symptoms were uh, stimulus-based so listening to music or or having um, a lot of different sounds or a lot of visual input um, exacerbated my symptoms and that went from just headache and nausea to really high anxiety because like, if you were to be in a restaurant with friends, a normally very pleasant and enjoyable atmosphere, you can, like, focus on what they're saying and your brain is able to, to filter out non-important information. Uh, so you can just, you know, exist. For my symptoms, all of all of the information coming in was at the same volume. And it was very loud, and so it was very anxiety-producing to to not be able to um, to filter out all the sounds and not feel like you could escape it, and it just kind of like spiraled and spiraled and and led to lots of panic attacks and and it was very and like yeah, just feeling nauseous and and out of control. You know, if I did distill a lot of my symptoms, it was it was versions of that. I would be in the kitchen early on, trying to remember how to make just oatmeal and all of the steps involved. It seems like nothing now um, or before, but breaking it down to like, okay, I want to make oatmeal. What is the first step? It's not make oatmeal. It's where's the pot? Okay, now that I found the pot, what? is next and having to break it down that far and all the while feeling your energy levels and your, your symptoms come up because you're making oatmeal like that. That's like just feeling like nothing's working. Um, it it just, it's a vicious, vicious cycle. You get, you get overwhelmed because you're overwhelmed. Uh, and then that leads to more symptoms which overwhelms you more which leads to more symptoms and then you're out of protection you just kind of shut down
0: what was the prognosis at the time i mean what were the medical experts saying and were you confident that you would make a recovery or did you think this could be it. This is how I'm going to be now.
1: The brain is unbelievably complex. I think everyone would agree to that. And if you were to take like a pet scan of the brain, each pixel represents like 50,000 connections in the brain. Um and so while there was no uh damage that you could point to on a screen, um you know, based on Based on the tests that they were doing, it's like, yeah, your your brain is damaged, and um, and so it was quite a roller coaster of like. I went to a concussion specialist, and I'm barely able to sit in the room with the lights on, wearing sunglasses and a hat, and focus on the guy, and he's telling me like, it might be a few months before you're able to ride again and I'm like no <laughs> I don't agree with you I need to get on a bike as soon as possible as I can barely sit and talk to the guy like I need to get on a bike next week and so there was the denial and just not willing to accept you know what was not understanding the timelines involved with brain injury recovery um, and so, yeah, for the first month, it was just like, yeah, kind of being in denial of of what was what was the reality of my situation. And then it finally took, it sounds simple, but just accepting that I had a brain injury and that it was, yes, it was a concussion, but that doesn't mean that it's any less traumatic than a traumatic brain injury. And so kind of putting that name on it allowed me to operate in in the world where I have one so I was able to lean into the recovery more I kind of got rid of any timelines um and also you know after two months and I still can't operate outside of my apartment and most of that time being spent in a dark room um unable to read or listen to music uh it kind of made it, I guess, real. Um, there were definitely some times where I was like, "I, I never want to ride a bike again." Nothing is worse, risking feeling like this, um, this out of control, this you know, unable to function. Um, and so, yeah, I was like, "I'll never ride a bike again." Um, I'll, <laughs> I'll become a runner, or or not even looking far beyond the next week as as to what my existence would look like once i let go of trying to be a bike rider again or having the bike be an option it was like all right now we focus on trying to be a human who can operate in society again and that became the goal
0: what what had you been doing whilst um racing had you been working as well combining those two things and 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 what were you doing you know obviously unable to do anything during the um the first phase of your recovery so i I guess everything must have been completely up in the air what what is life going to look like after this
1: Mm -hmm. um i i had been in phases of committing to racing full-time and then um in short, running out of money and then having to get a job on the side, uh, to get enough budget to do another block of racing, um, to try to, you know, validate, uh, sponsorship and support. And so when I had moved to Massachusetts, I had enough, uh, logistical support for my, um, for my team that I was able to, uh, supplement my living expenses by coaching Um, and then after the brain injury, I couldn't coach if it was too hard to make oatmeal, uh, try to outline someone's training plan over weeks and months was also going to be too hard. Um, and so for the, for the first phase, I completely survived on, uh, the support of, of the cycling community through a GoFundMe, um, uh, $8,000 $8,000 was raised for me, which is unbelievable. And that was able to get me through the first phase. Um, and then I guess like nine, nine months, a year in, uh, I started working for a coffee company. Um, cause coffee was something that was very simple where there are three variables and you can, uh, in a very short amount of time, get a, A product from those three variables Uh, and so when my timeline for progress or improvement was so long something like coffee was very uh, grounding and so I just started by literally putting stickers on bags for half an hour. They let me volunteer my time and slowly graduated from putting stickers on bags for half an hour to doing it for two hours to filling the bags to learning how to quality control coffee and then be able to to do a little bit more as um, a barista at their you know at the roastery and so by that point we're 14 months in still not able to drive slowly trying to figure out ways to reintegrate with the world um, in in ways that wouldn't exacerbate symptoms uh, but still kind of help me feel progress
0: and physically i mean how did you keep physically fit without you know making the symptoms worse or 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 hampering your recovery or did you just just live a a, you know a, a very kind of simple um life without sport being a part of it for a while
1: um at first it was it was that just not making sport part of it um where i lived in in Massachusetts, there was this mountain called Mountain Tom, kind of right behind where I lived, and that became my escape, and so it would start with, you know, a 15-minute walk in the woods, and then slowly that became kind of my my window into the outside world where, you know, uh, I, could, I could just go be in the woods and it started, yeah, like I said, it started with simple walks, and then I guess what you would call hikes, and then was able to start, you know, running a bit and getting my heart rate up without having symptoms. Um, and so I, I definitely leaned on what I, you know, what I had spent the last six years of my life doing, which was movement, um, kind of going back to movement as my as my escape from you know the reality that I was living in, um, but it was nothing was for trying to be um, a competitive athlete at that point. It was just moving, moving through the woods.
0: And what about getting back on the bike? Did you just go, just go for it, or did you sort of build up? Did you maybe um, ride on the static bike indoors just? to uh well reduce and minimize any chance of having another spill i guess i'll say that i just went for
1: it spontaneously with the caveat of this was almost a year and a year and a quarter after my accident that i felt like i could spontaneously try riding a bike And it was, it was definitely not a situation where it was like, and the heavens opened and a beam of sun came down and I am now fully functioning and my world is complete again. Um, it was actually pretty notable how, uh, anticlimactic it was and how it was still almost like scary, uh, I think had it been this big um, defining moment and I had this awesome experience, it would have been like validating and, and made me want to invest more. Uh, But I didn't get back on a bike for another two weeks because it it just didn't, you know, it didn't do that thing for me. It was just, I I had come to a point where I had let go enough that I was fine with it just existing. Um, It was, it was definitely not the finish line of my recovery story. My my friend group and support group at that time was still pretty involved in bikes. Um, and so there's, like, the social component of, like, winter's over and people are starting to ride again and they don't want to go for hikes in the woods as much or runs in the woods. So I feel left out. Uh, so maybe bikes. Again, this is, like, fast-forwarding and, like, avoiding a lot of ups and downs context and context and struggles. I had reached a point, I guess this is two years in, where... I had decided that, as far as racing goes, um, as a you know a capital B bike racer, um, I still had some stuff unfulfilled, and I feel and I felt like I needed to to try bike racing again to decide for myself if bike racing was something that I wanted to do, um, because that decision was taken away from me after my accident. And so again, it was like with the support of friends and family and medical professionals and having like a game plan for if anything happened, I got back and did a a bike race. And it was at that point, a few years in, it was very gratifying and empowering to be like, I chose to do this. I really enjoy putting on a number and having it and not having it based on result or anything like that, but just like putting on a number and going around in circles in a field makes me happy, kind of independent of anything else.
0: The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science science in sport specializes in fueling athletes for endurance so whatever your plans for exploration in 2023 make sure you're stocked up on science in sport products Beta Fuel, for example, is designed for long rides or back to back rides, giving you the carbohydrates you need to ride harder for longer without having to weigh yourself down with loads to eat. Because efficiency is the name of the game, energy in easy to digest, easy to process forms. Beta Fuel comes as a powder to mix into a drink, gels, or even energy chews. See the whole range at scienceinsport.com. How long was it between the accident and that day when you pinned on a number for the first time again, and uh, what what kind of event was that? What sort of level were you coming back in at? Um, let's see. It was just
1: under two years, maybe like two years minus a month. Um, and it was it was a criterium um, and it was a criterion that all of my friends put on. So it felt like a very safe space. And I came in at the, the pro one, two, three level at the behest of my friends. Um, cause I was, I was racing as a cat one before my accident. And they were saying, you can't, you can't unlearn how to be, uh, smart in a bike race, whether you're fast anymore or not, you can definitely, uh, you can maneuver your way through a field, and kind of in a. I'm looking back on it now in a, the universe kind of testing me. Um, halfway through the race, it started raining, and so it was just like, okay, uh, do you really, you know, do you want to finish this race or not? Do you is, is this? Do you still want to be racing a bike as it's raining? Are you willing to kind of accept this risk? I moved my way to the back of the field where it was safer relatively and, and was able to like cross the finish line, who knows who cares what place. And there was both a deep feeling of satisfaction of like kind of conquering this scary thing. And then also what came with it was like, in the beginning of the conversation, we talked about how much, uh, racing is just being in the moment and turn to turn to turn and just hyper present. And so when, when all of a sudden I left that hyper present um, mode, there was definitely an element of like kind of all of the emotions of being of what could have happened kind of rushed in. And so there was, it was definitely kind of a elated that I got through it and, and conquered this thing, but also a heavy like, woof that still could have been really bad so kind of the acknowledgement of both sides of it
0: i mean what did it feel the same i mean had your had your brain recovered enough to kind of cope with that intense concentration and that that hyper um, sense of being in the moment is in itself kind of tiring for the mind isn't it um how did you kind of feel when you got back into it the only thing that
1: changed honestly was Uh, my willingness to hit the brakes I had everything else in my life had to be at a point where I could operate normally um, before I would even consider racing a bike so in kind of a for anyone who has had a brain injury it can like the the grocery store can be like the scariest most uh, stimulating place that you could go Uh, and I had reached a level in my recovery where I was actually working at a grocery store Um, and so most of, most of my world was set and solid and, um, my symptoms were, were pretty well managed. And so going into the bike race, well, I hadn't done it in a while. It was, it was a deep sense of familiarity. Um, there was, it was almost less thinking than it would to like, you know, uh, remember the whenever I needed to type into a computer when someone comes with a squash through the checkout line um so there's actually less thought uh less less chance for symptoms um at least at that point uh in my recovery journey
0: so at what point did you set this ambition you obviously you know any athlete wants to perform at the highest level they possibly can but did you set yourself a, a goal to get over to Europe and uh, see how you would get on against the very best in the world?
1: Absolutely not. Um, it was it was such an inevitability uh, in my mind before my accident, but after my accident, like, I've, I just, if there was a race that was more than two hours of driving away, like, I wouldn't do it. It just wasn't, it didn't make sense. It took too much time, too much effort. I had work to go to, blah, blah, blah. Um, And then uh, the... I was having a decent amount of success, I guess, relative to the amount of time and effort that I was putting in because I was just having fun, training the bare minimum um, that I could just to, you know, feel like I could line up to race. And I had a really successful season in 2019. Um, I, I had gotten some UCI podiums which was unbelievable because I'd only tick that box once before my accident and I got 3 uh um in 2019 I had gotten third place at our national championships in the single speed race um and I was just like pretty excited about like you know by by not caring I was doing better than when I only defined myself as a bike racer And then uh, I met my lovely partner and moved from New England to Boulder, Colorado, right before the pandemic, hit uh, like a month before, and then the world shut down. Um, And, you know, like anything, uh, it kind of gave me uh, a moment to think and and kind of redefine what the bike was. Uh, Again, we all kind of had that opportunity, especially without bike racing. Um, because I gotten to the point where i I liked to ride my bike uh so that I could race, I definitely wasn't like a Laughlin Morton where I just like liked to ride for the sake of riding. It was like, no, this is just a means to be able to do the thing that I like, which is depending on a number uh and and with that kind of taken away, um it really had me reassess what the bike was to me um and then as the pandemic progressed I found out that in the US we were going to have three World Cup cyclocross races um, in the span of a week and kind of had this moment of like how cool would it be to give it a nudge Um, and that was kind of the first I had thought about like really committing to to being a bike racer again this is all in the context of like I still had a full time job I still was working. It wasn't like I uh, went full stereotypical monk cyclist. Um, but again, it was kind of like I wanted to s- few things challenge myself to give the pre-brain injury Ben the opportunity to, like he would have he would have really enjoyed the opportunity to, to try. And then also to, to use it as a platform for speaking about brain injury and mental health um, and not make it all about me trying to do this thing for me that I've always wanted to do, but to, to have a conversation about uh, mental health issues that came up during my brain injury and then also about brain injury recovery and trying to support people in a way that I was supported. And so I created the Small Monsters Project uh, which is now a non-profit, and um, kind of put my head down and I wanted to see if I could race with the best in the world. Fast forwarding, I was able to to make the, the World Cup teams and race against the like of Ellie Easerbeat and uh, Lawrence Swake and and Michael Van Turnout and all these guys that you watch on TV for years. And was able to tick a really, you know, really cool box that I that I had completely let go of, uh, and so it was all bonus. Um, so that was twenty twenty one, and then coming into this year, um, wanting to raise more money and raise more awareness, um, but having just moved to California, I I wasn't in the the physical place to have made the World Cups in the U.S. and through my job allowing me to and my lovely partner giving me uh permission to think about trying to do it um Europe came on the table and so yeah made plans to do the Christmas cross period this year uh with the full mindset of going as a tourist who has the chance to line up and do the races I'd trained my butt off to be as strong as I could but I wasn't going for a result Um, it was purely to see what it was like to be in the big race as a tourist
0: I mean during the process of your recovery I gather you had to kind of learn to read again had to learn to drive again had to well right from the very beginning had to learn how to make oatmeal again and or a coffee again and to then reach the point where you are lining up on the start line alongside or perhaps just a bit behind because of the gridding system but uh walt van Art, matthew Vanderpool, and tom pidcock i mean that is quite a journey
1: it really is and being able to do it wearing my small monsters kit um and reinforcing that like that wasn't the finish line that i was looking for like that doesn't end end my recovery story that ended when i could operate as a human being again um but just yeah the acknowledgement of like man this is really incredible um to to be able to to during the warm up uh, going up and down the start line to like give stoked kids high fives they don't know who I am, but they're stoked that I'm there and that I'm in the same race as these big, big riders. Uh, and, like, that was super cool. And and to to, to be able to, like, ride up next to Wout Van and be like, man, he's a unit. He's so big. And just have all these, like, complete fanboy moments of, of the sport and coming from a spot where I couldn't even look at a computer screen to watch the races for a year um, it was definitely a special it was a, it was moments that I would think about on every start line um, as you know the lights turned like went from red to green and you know the heartbeat thing happens and all of those little moments of, of bike racing that I had let go or even sworn off
0: So tell me about how you actually engineered this trip to Belgium. I mean, how did you make it happen? Because you came over to do five races over the Christmas and New Year period, including, um, you know, super prestige uh, race, the Sven Nace Trophy in his hometown in Baal. And, you know, you were then the the famous venue, Coxider on the, the army barracks there where you kind of became a bit of a a social media sensation for uh for a day or so with with uh with the incident there we'll, we'll come on to that in a minute but you know you were you were there as part of uh, a field of the best cyclocross riders in the world in really the heartland of cyclocross i mean this is the sort of this for americans the super bowl isn't it of of uh of the sport some of these venues
1: mm-hmm. um I mean, I'm, I'm in a super fortunate position where, um, I went from not being able to support myself with any sort of income to now I have a full-time job working for a cycling clothing company and I'm in a very privileged position to be able to kind of realize that this trip was a big opportunity. I don't like, while you said that I'm in the prime at age 32, 33, um, the I'm I, I don't know how long I'll be able to be fast enough to justify going going to Europe, uh, and so it was a it was an opportunity that I was willing to kind of invest in and you know go into a little bit of debt for, to, to really just yeah kind of like see what happens. Um, uh, I was able to uh, apply for a a grant with the the Flandrian Hotel in West Flanders, which is all about the internationalization of cyclocross and so I was one of uh nine nationalities that stayed there over the course of two weeks there's Italians and Scots Scottish people and and Irish and um and Israeli that was alone was such an, an amazing experience um I also have been riding uh for Richie Logic since 2015 um as my bike sponsor and they've they stuck with me through my whole brain injury recovery process, and and not once did their support waver. Uh, no matter if I was going to end up back on a bike or not, or be a bike racer or not. And so, from that side of things, like they were super excited to see what you know to take me from guys. I think that I could be your first rider in Europe uh, in a long time to being able to kind of fulfill that fulfill that dream and goal uh obviously in a, in a much different capacity as as just kind of a tourist, but uh, they were they were really instrumental in in helping uh, helping the trip happen. There was a little little drama kind of going in where they let over a 100 people register for these races and then two days before the race said they're only taking 100 people and you have to be ranked in the top 100 people. Uh, and so I couldn't start. Even though I had flown across the world to be there, and on the start list there was 15 people who weren't ranked higher than me, and then only 83 people started in Zolder, which I was planning on racing. Um, and so there was a little bit of uh, a little bit of a worry that I wasn't going to be able to race at all. Um, but once we really get that sorted, uh, it was just it was yeah, it was just race and recover, race and recover, and just try to be eyes wide open and and yeah just try to learn and and experience what what racing in Europe is like and racing in Belgium is like during during this holiday block where it is it is a completely different sport than than what we do in the US and I'm I I was able to get 8th place at our national championships this year and I've been single speed national champion uh and so I feel like I have a little bit of uh credibility uh as far as US racing goes, but man, going there it was like it's a different sport. And yeah, it was just it was just incredible.
0: So your first race, your debut was in uh, a Yes. in the end wasn't it on December the 28th Is it? and I mean when I look at the results there I mean Van Art won it Tom Pidcock second and Matthew Vanderpool third and Ben Frederick 65th I mean you know that's uh, that to just to be in in the same uh, result sheet as as those guys and and to have raced on the same circuit I mean w- just t- tell me what it was like in that um, build up to the race just catching your first glimpse of those three because I mean they're not just superstars of cyclocross are they they're superstars of global cycling mm-hmm. um, oh, there's so
1: so many like highlights to or like moments in time that that really stick out of Degum is the night race so it's dark driving into a, a city center um, not knowing where the course is it's raining getting the bike set up trying to find the course then you get on the course for pre-ride and something i did not even remotely expect was like there are a lot of people there which i knew um but they just stand there and watch you try to pre-ride stuff and it's so intimidating where like i'm hitting you know i'm hitting mud uh like the mud here is different there is different So I'm hitting, you know, trying to learn how to hit these ruts or like dial in these lines while people two, three, four deep are just like staring at you watching. (laughs) And it was so intimidating. And so then, you know, you kind of get through that and there was an off-camber section uh, towards the bottom of the course where I was trying to figure it out. And I stood there and watched watched Tom Pickcock do this crazy line that like, only three people looking back did in the race and it was just like unbelievable the fact that he one could even see that line two that he could execute that line and three like again like I felt like I am okay at riding bikes I could not even wrap my head around attempting that Uh, and so that was like a pretty wild moment of, of just being a part of the show Uh, And then I lined up literally last row. I think there were 14 rows of people. I was the hundredth call up. And so right from the beginning, like it was like, you know, my race, my race is not the same race as the guys in the front. I'm just seeing how many people I can pass. And so the fact that I was able to pass 40 people was pretty cool. And just the wall of noise and I don't know. I've watched D.M. 10 years in a row. So to be able to do that road, you know, that, that climb that, you know, you, that's so iconic in D.M. Like riding that was so cool. And then every part of the courses there was, it wasn't a guarantee for me to be able to ride clean. Uh, and, and that's just not picked up on TV or just my skills aren't there. And these guys, this is, you know, local races for them. And even though my race lasted 38 minutes or something, um, Me and my my Richie friend uh, and like longtime supporter Fergus, like you know, I'm covered in mud, and he's like, "Hey, man, how was that?" And I was like, "That was a crazy experience." He's like, "Do you want to go get some frites?" And I'm still covered in mud and with my bike, and I was like, "You know what? Let's let's go get some frites." And so we got Belgian frites with curry ketchup and stood there and watched the best cyclists in the world go by from an athlete point of view i was bummed to have not raced longer but from a fan point of view it's like i got to line up in a in a race with such skilled riders that it may like that you know the the perfect scenario of having all three of those riders there might not ever happen again
0: just explain you know what actually happens when you you basically your race is done when you you get lapped right
1: if you're if you're at risk of getting lapped if you're going 80% of the the leaders time they'll pull you um, because they don't want to impede the front of the race which is totally valid and fair Uh, as much as it I want to keep racing Um, and so my race was go as fast as I possibly could uh, without any sort of um, strategy for doing a long race to see how far into the race I could get. Uh, because what you're dreading is going up the, the stairs to the start, finish straight, and having a commissaire blow a whistle and have you go off the course. Um, and so you're just trying to avoid hearing that whistle.
0: Wow, I mean, that that's intense, isn't it? Talk about living in the moment. I mean that's kind of the ultimate living in the moment isn't it yeah and you know that there was
1: it was tempting to just like be bike racer mode and just you know how many people can I pass and like just being so focused on on nailing every line and not going any slower and and all of those things but I really going into the trip was like I want to experience this and so once it kind of became apparent that like I was where I was going to be, I wasn't moving up anymore. Uh, I made sure to like be really deliberate about looking up and interacting with the fans um, because there were so many and they were so excited about, about people by like doing these races and yeah, maybe it was beer fueled and, and just, you know, party atmosphere. But you know, the moment I started you know shouting back at them or trying to get them to do the wave or whatever all of a sudden they were just so excited and and that totally changed you know my experience of of doing the thing where they were looking for you to come by the next lap and and you could you know even just giving high fives to people in the middle of the race it it doesn't slow me down at all um but it it gives you know gives me a chance to that I did something cool and maybe it was cool for them to get a high five from some random dude on a steel bike <laughs> in the middle of middle of the night and in dig
0: So the, is that how the little moment came about in Coxider? Because I mean, uh, it looked like that, uh, you know, the, the, the fans really bought into that moment when, you flipped over the handlebars coming down the sandy descent and then gave him a, gave him a bow and you, you got a, 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 you know, a big cheer, kind of a crowd pleasing moment that.
1: Yeah. It, I had kind of taken, you know, each race realizing that if I'm trudging up a big hill, let's say, uh, at Herentals, it's really, it's really hard. It's not a fun moment. Um, and where, where I, kind of ended up in the race it's it's kind of quiet uh the fans you know I'm you know the fans saw the the big 3 go by and it's just kind of little little old me and whoever's around me the the fans there I feel like were always looking for someone to cheer for whether it's someone who falls down which I did later in in my trip or just someone who's willing to like get people hyped up and so I started going through and um kind of putting my hand really low and going, and everyone was like so excited. They were like, and I threw my hand up and they're like, Um, and they just lost their minds every time I came by. And it was an added value to me from a very egotistical standpoint, like a lot of people are cheering for me. Um, Or these people are like, I mean, everyone pays 15 to 18 euros, 20 euros to go to these races and why not give them a cool experience? Um, and it makes trudging up a mountain in the middle of a, you know, in the middle of a cyclocross race that much more enjoyable. And so taking, you know, that lesson from Herentals and enjoying that moment, um, I kind of did the same thing at Coxside where there's there's so many people lining the course and it's kind of quiet and I didn't just want to hear myself breathe out of my eyeballs. So I got the crowd involved. Um And yeah, like you get, you, you, you get one section hyped and then later on down the court, like a few hundred meters away, they're really curious about what people are cheering for. And then they get kind of clued in that it's little old me. And so then they start cheering when I go by. And so, um, the, the little front flip over the handlebars, I think a lot of the reaction that you saw was kind of investing in in the crowd a few laps before yeah and then if you see it the whole way the whole rest of the way to the flyover people were just losing their minds and and again like I'm not a professional I'm just out here trying to have a good time uh, give people a good time share the message of my team and you know while on one hand it could be very embarrassing to have my my moments of fame, be because i fell down <laughs> it's still it's still really cool to have that kind of on the ground support uh, i heard even before the accident that like the people were cheering for while wow, like crazy and then lawrence swick because he's belgian and was doing well and then me little old me who was in 40th place you know trying to go more than 40 minutes into into the race
0: So, I mean, I'm assuming it comes across, I mean, clearly the experience was everything that you hoped it would be. uh, Is it something that you want to repeat?
1: Absolutely. I still feel young in the sport because I started late and there was two years where I wasn't actively participating. So I still have a very like childlike mind of wanting to improve. I also feel like it's a little bit my, my calling in life and mission to to use my story to, to help people. Um, you know, in the past two years, we've raised over $50,000 for nonprofits in the brain injury space. Um, but beyond that, selfishly, like going and and just seeing how much of a different sport it is and the different skill sets required has lit me up as an athlete more than I've been lit up in a long time for like all right, like, how can I go back and do better? Um, It'd be really cool to try to finish on the lead lap of one of these things, but even just like, okay, now I know how physically brutal racing in ball is. What can I do to make it less brutal next year? Or cockside was an unbelievably challenging race, How can I be either develop my skills or kind of structure my training so that I can do an all-out 30-second effort to get through the sand and then be able to get on my bike and run with any sort of skill or grace or speed right after that. Every single race I wished, even though it was so physically demanding and challenging and I was wrecked after, I was like, I wish I could do it tomorrow knowing what I know now. Because I only, you know, these guys have done, they go the day before, they do five, six laps. Then they go the next day and pre-ride three, four laps. And they race nine laps for 14 years. <laughs> I at most got eight laps in total. Uh, and so I want to go back with eight laps in my belt. And oh, it's it's going to sound so silly, but it's like, it's Europe. It's such a... It's old. There's old stuff to see. There's, there's, um, you know, just old buildings in, in and in a culture that's, you know, older than our barely, you know, 300 year old America. And there's like old stuff to see and, and roads to ride. And where the hotel was, was like on the Tour of Flanders route. So I got to do the Benendries and the Koppenberg and, and the Valkenberg and all that stuff. It's just, it was just such a cool life-changing trip that like, yeah, if I can make it happen again, I definitely, I definitely want to do it.
0: And lastly, Ben, uh, with the world championships coming up and you've, you know, rubbed shoulders with the, Walt Van Aert and Tom Pidcock and Matthew van der Poel. I mean, does it give you that experience that you've had? Does it give you a kind of a renewed sense of, of understanding of, you know, just what those guys are made of and and just how good they are? Oh,
1: totally. I mean, even, one of the one of a big takeaways was like I was able to ride the race and then we'd go back that night and I'll watch the race um the actual bike race not the participation event that I was in uh and so to watch the way that they rode the same courses that I rode uh yeah it just brought a whole nother level of of like context and understanding of just how good these guys are and this is all the way down to like top 30 top 40 guys um in the Herentals race I was able to have an insane start and go through the pit first pit in 14th place second American like whoa this is wild and then over the next two minutes pedal literally as hard as I can which is pretty hard and just have everyone walk away from me um and not be able to do anything about it uh you know having Quentin herman's just flick me off the wheel and then put 10 seconds into me while i'm pedaling as hard as i can
0: excellent ben frederick thank you very much
1: thank you lionel it's been a it's been a pleasure and i I do want to take a quick uh, opportunity to thank cycling podcast uh specifically as part of my recovery story um for months i couldn't like i could not listen to uh listen to music i couldn't watch anything um but your back catalog of of the grand tours and um and then you know all of the different uh reporting that you've done was really uh it really helped me in a really rough time where i could go back and and listen to the 2014 tour de france day by day um and then, yeah, the more that you guys were able to report on, the more more space it got to fill in my life while I was just kind of waiting to get better. Um, and so I've been a long, long, long time fan. And the fact that I even get to the opportunity to speak to you uh, now is just, it's, it's as cool as lining up for Degum against the best cyclists in the world
0: oh steady on steady on now ben that's uh, i was with you i was with you up to that point up to that point I, that. I do i do mean it <laughs> lionel
1: um you and and daniel and, and richard are have, have been such uh part of i guess the part of the wallpaper that that lines my recovery story so i really want to want to shout you guys out and thank you for for all the great stories that you've told
0: This has been an episode of Explore by The Cycling Podcast. It was produced by Adam Bowie.